Our scripture reading from this morning is from 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, for those of you that I haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Nick Polico, and I am now technically one of the pastors of this church, but really I'm serving at the Palos Heights site, which is a daughter congregation of Trinity Hinsdale. And my family and I have been here for just a few weeks. I do want to get Jennifer and the boys up here, but they're actually back in Michigan with her family this weekend for a uh, family baptism. But I'm really glad to be with you. And uh, I would love to encourage you, if you have an actual Bible, or if you pull it up on your phone, um, you might want to pull up 1 Corinthians 13, because I will, we're going to look at the whole chapter. This was probably my fault, my typo. It was meant to be 1 Corinthians 12, 31 through 13, 13, as opposed to 13, 3. I probably left out the, the one numeral when I emailed it to those who made the bulletin. But you might want to look at that. But we um, are going to look at this really famous passage of Scripture where the Apostle Paul extols the virtues of love and calls God's people to embody them more fully. And let's, let's pray and ask for God's blessing as we, as we do so. Father, we do thank you for the tremendous demonstration of love that took place when, when Jesus Christ himself took our sins upon himself on the tree to carry them away from us. We thank you for his, his resurrection and his triumph over death and the, the hope that your kingdom of love and justice will come in fullness. And we ask that you would capture our imaginations this morning with this passage as we look at the beauty of love and ask that you would help us to, to embody this more fully in our, in our lives together. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So last uh, May, when it wasn't quite official that my family was going to come here, I had the chance to sit around a table with a large group of the brothers and sisters from Redemption, uh, the Palis congregation. And they, it was kind of a Q&A time. People could ask me whatever they wanted. And one person asked, so what's your favorite thing about being a pastor? Which is a really good question, and I just hadn't really prepared for that one. And so I think I gave a kind of generic kind of God, Jesus, in the Bible Sunday school answer about, you know, it's really a privilege to be in the Word of God all week, and it's great as a pastor to get to know people very deeply. And those things are all true, and I do love those things. But it wasn't a very interesting uh, or personalized response. And as I've thought about it more, I've realized 
that what excites me the most these days about being a pastor is the prospect of getting to be a, a part of God's shaping of a Christian community into a sort of people that, that shocks and hopefully even delights uh, ourselves and the world around us when it is seen how loving we are. And I say this because I think it is increasingly common for people to think that there are kind of two kinds of Christians in the world, or you know, probably really two kinds of religious people in general, and two kinds of Christians in particular. There are those who really don't actually believe this stuff, and they just sort of embody the views and the, the way of life of the kind of prevailing culture around us with some, you know, nice religious traditions and trappings kind of left over from the past because they make us feel good. And the mission of such Christians is simply to just affirm everything, everybody, uh, the way we are. Or on the other hand, there are those who really do believe this stuff, and they are therefore hostile and self-righteous and view it as their mission to dominate everyone else. And the message basically is, we are good, you should be like us too. And of course, neither of those things is a, you know, what Jesus has established in his church. We are not meant to simply embody you know, the changing uh, norms around us, and we are also not to have our noses turned up at our neighbors as though we somehow, by our own merit, our own goodness, have achieved something when in fact we have simply been given a gift. And that is what, that is what our faith is. It's a gift. And so to, to be a sort of community that embodies a shocking, even disorienting kind of love, um, to, to be part of facilitating that, that is what excites me most these days about being a pastor. I think years ago I might have said, I really want to help people think more clearly and think rightly. And of course, you know, I'm still a Presbyterian. I still like that sort of thing. But even thinking rightly is a means to an end. And we are to make love, the love that Jesus has given us and the love that he calls us to embody, the basis and the goal of every single thing we do as individuals, as households, as a church. The basis and the goal has got to be love. But the trouble is that even in a church like this one where I really do sense an encouraging amount of love, Love is hard to, to develop, it's hard to increase, and it's hard to maintain at any church, even the best churches, and that is because every single church, without exception, is comprised entirely of people. People who are like me and can be profoundly difficult to love and have a profoundly difficult time loving those who are profoundly difficult to love. There are threats to love at every Turn Even on a gorgeous, sunny summer day at an exciting time in the life of this congregation where you're about to move and start a new chapter, there are threats to love. And yet it needs to be the basis and the aim of everything we do. So let's look at this passage together to see why this is so. And the first thing the Apostle Paul tells us is that without love, we are nothing. We're nothing. The first verse is, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong, 
or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. And if I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Some of you, if you've read 1 Corinthians before, you know that the Corinthian Christians were having all manner of controversies and divisions in their church for all sorts of reasons. They were boasting about who's, who was more gifted and whose gifts were better and more able to serve the church and who had a higher spiritual pedigree. And the Apostle Paul is telling them that it does not matter what sort of competencies, what sort of skills, what sort of gifts, what sort of knowledge you have. Even though competencies and skills and gifts and knowledge are good things, that if, if they are not accompanied and rooted and grounded in love, and if they don't have love in their aim, they, they are absolutely worthless. And we, without love, are nothing. You can be gifted and puffed up about your giftedness. We can be confident and yet cold to people. We can be charitable outwardly and yet be entirely self-absorbed. This is, this is sobering for us. This is why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, that very famous sermon, that there are those who will say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and teach and cast out demons and do all sorts of good things to whom he will say, but I never knew you. Depart from me. It's possible to have gifts that bless the body of Christ even, that bless the church and the world, and to not even know him and to be nothing. Francis Schaeffer, uh, many of you are familiar with that name, and many of you, I'm sure, are not. He's a, he was a Christian pastor, and he led a sort of retreat center where people could come and be in community and have their questions answered. And he had a, he had a spiritual crisis when he was a youngish man. It was in the early 50s. Because he was part of a, a Presbyterian denomination that I think doesn't even exist anymore. Or if it does, it's a really a micro-denomination that had emerged from a great deal of controversy where a number of the churches they had been affiliated with had been walking away from basic and essential biblical doctrine. Stuff that it really is important to maintain and to fight for. And this group of Christians wanted, and rightfully so, to stand for truth and to hold on to it. And yet, Schaefer began to sense that there wasn't any what he described as reality. Meaning that it didn't seem to be an actual experience of Christ, an actual experience of, of God and his love in the circles that he was a part of, even though there was this vigilance and this commitment to sound doctrine. And it caused a spiritual crisis that led him to eventually need to disaffiliate with that group and go elsewhere. But he, he wrote in uh, one article for the denominational magazine that he, was, uh, that he wrote for regularly, in our day, life is such that while Christians do many things to serve the Lord, it is obvious from our faces and our conversations that few enjoy him and experience his love, to paraphrase. He, 
Schaefer looked and he saw an extraordinary amount of spiritual knowledge, activity, and zeal. And yet he didn't see love. And it made him wonder, do we even know God at all? It actually made him wonder, is God even real? It caused such a spiritual crisis for him. Now, I think it's easy for us to point, act, to, to point out that it is possible to have a zeal sort of for like sound teaching that isn't accompanied by, by love. But, you know, you can have a zeal for all sorts of things. I knew a person, I've been, you know, over the years as a pastor and then just as a church member, um, there have been a number of churches I've had the chance to be a part of. And one person in particular comes to mind from my past who is zealous for community. Zealous that Christians embody love for one another and for their neighbors. And she is so zealous for this that when she sees the church, in her mind, failing to do this the way she thinks they ought to, she can become absolutely furious and disruptive and and divisive and actually hostile. Because in her zeal for love, she sometimes does not actually demonstrate love. This is actually a, uh, a Christian sister who, over the time that I've spent with her, I saw God do some really marvelous things in her heart to grow her in this area. But I want you to consider for a second, you know, just a really famous quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together, where he says that those who love their idea of a Christian community more than they love that community itself will destroy that community. This is a good thing for this congregation to think about in this transitional season as you get ready to move to another place because I would imagine that there are all sorts of hopes and dreams for what might be next in the life of this church. And that's as it should be. But inevitably along the way, we find that as we live in community together, we disappoint each other, we frustrate each other, we offend each other, we let each other down. And the dreams that we had, some of them might actually come true. Some of them might not, or they might not in the way that we had envisioned. And it is essential that we love the actual people sitting around us more than we love our our fantasies about what the people around us should be. Every one of us has gifts and thought uh, and and, and beliefs and insights that are God-given, but that if they're divorced from love can actually become weapons that we turn on one another with. So without love, we are, we are nothing. And even the good things that we have are nothing. That's the first thing the Apostle Paul warns us of. The second thing he warns us of is that our, our, our failures at love are evident if we're honest with ourselves. And that's where he gives this his beautiful description of love, but really what he's doing is sort of giving a litmus test so that the Corinthian Christians and we ourselves can match ourselves up with it and see where we fall short. And it can be sort of devastating to do this, honestly. I thought about calling this sermon Paul's devastating description of love. But then I realized my first sermon to you a couple weeks ago was called The Humiliating Love of Jesus. And I just thought, okay, we've gone from humiliation to devastation in the sermon titles. Okay, so what is this guy going to do next? Maybe condemnation, (laughs) obliteration, 
How is he going to discourage us next month? But, you know, this, this passage is read frequently at weddings and whatnot, and we think of it as being this sort of sweet and sentimental and encouraging thing. And, of course, it is beautiful, this description. But Paul is gently encouraging the Corinthians to sort of compare themselves with this description of love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, meaning it endures. Believes all things, not meaning that it's naive, but meaning that it's not cynical. It doesn't always assume the worst. It's a good thing for us to hear in our American moment right now. Hopes all things, endures all things. It's been pointed out to me that Paul explains to us that love is all of these things at once. All of these characteristics of love are part of a singular whole that can't be separated one from another. And the reason this can be so devastating is that that means that the, the, the measure of our love is the extent to which we embody the characteristic of love that we are the worst at. Does that make sense? Every single one of us, you know, we have a, a temperament and a personality that makes it easier for us to fake some of these characteristics than it is for us to fake others. But the, the love of Jesus Christ that is borne out in us by the Holy Spirit includes every single one of these characteristics. And so the measure of our love is the extent to which we embody the characteristic in this list that we are the worst at. And then the measure of our love is the measure of the soundness of our faith in Jesus and our life with God. You know, I have known uh, these people, most people are not like this, but there are enough that I've known a number of them who are, just have such naturally sunny and warm dispositions that it's hard to believe that they're really sinful. It's hard to believe that they're really a fallen person. Like, how, really? Is there really anything wrong with this guy? Is there really any fault with this, this woman? But if you spend enough time with them, if they get into just the right circumstance, the place where love has not been formed in them as fully as it ought to be will emerge. And so, you know, it's possible to have a sort of counterfeit patience that looks like the real thing, but yet is found in a person who quietly and subtly keeps a record of wrongs, as the Apostle Paul says. They hold grudges. Every little slight and offense they hang on to and they rehearse it in their minds so that bitterness and resentment stews and is nurtured and, and grows. And therefore, that's not actually patience. It's possible to have a sort of counterfeit lack of envy that, that looks like contentment. You know, I don't, need, I, don't need more, I don't need more money. I don't need a bigger house. I don't need what she has. I don't need what he has. And yet that 
is accompanied by a sort of boastfulness in that. I don't need what those people go after. And therefore, that lack of envy isn't actually love. And so we are invited with this sort of this gorgeous description of love to honestly assess where we fall short the most and to be sort of undone before God as our, our, our lack of love is exposed. So we, we're invited, I just invite you to consider, you know, where of these do you see the least amount of development in your life? Hope, endurance, trust, the ability to avoid being irritable or resentful. Third thing the Apostle Paul shows us, and we are getting, we're getting to hope now, is that love will bring everything into view. That sounds like a very vague statement. What do I mean by that? The Apostle Paul, in, in chapter, in, in verse 8 and following, starts saying all these things about how prophecy and tongues will cease, and we could have all sorts of interesting discussions about that, but it's sort of beside the main point. He goes on to say, We know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Why is he using this illustration of growing up into maturity? It's because, he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. You know, mirrors back then were not as high quality as mirrors are now. You know, if you've ever looked into like a piece of like aluminum and you can, you know, maybe the offering plate here, you can sort of see yourself but it's distorted, it's blurry, it's not entirely clear. I was listening to an uh, interview the other day with, on the radio with Stephen King, the, the really famous horror author. He was being interviewed uh, by Terry Gross on NPR, and he was talking about how he believes in God. He's not a Christian, he doesn't ascribe to any particular faith, but he believes in God, and he just to kind of paraphrase, because it was a long quote and a long discussion, he said, you know, if, if you say you don't believe in God, you're missing the stars in the sky, and you're missing how every day the sun rises and sets. You're missing how the bees pollinate the crops so that we can be fed. It, it just looks like there's a, a design, and life is so full of good things. It's so full of good things to eat and good things to see and new places to go that I don't want to think we just go to darkness afterward. And yet, if you're going to believe in a, in a God, in a designer, you look around the world and there are all, are all sorts of things that make you wonder exactly what his motives are. You know, and I assume he's talking about suffering and whatnot. He's essentially saying, it's, I look at the world and it's sort of like looking at a glass darkly, mysteriously. There's evidence all around me screaming at me that there's a God of love and joy who gives us good gifts, and yet there seems to be so much that is at odds with this. For those of us who are Christians, you know, we believe that the Bible gives us 
an accurate diagnosis. It explains the crime scene in a way that makes sense. There is a good God of love. There's suffering because of human sin, but God has entered into that suffering in Jesus all the way to the point of death on a cross so that we could be saved from death and he's triumphed over death. And though this doesn't answer all of our questions, it gives us enough light by which we can walk. And yet even for those of us who believe these things, we still feel like we live in a glass darkly. We look at ourselves, our own hearts, our own failure at the diagnostic test we discussed a minute ago. We look at our churches and we think, this is God's missionary body in the world? This is like the embassy of the kingdom of heaven on earth? I am an ambassador for him? Somehow the life of our church and all of its mundaneness and frustration and this is how God is currently working to renew all things. And what the Apostle Paul says is that now faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. What he's saying is that right now we have to live by faith and we have to live in hope. And faith and hope indicate struggle. They indicate that we have not yet arrived where we're going, or they, won't, they wouldn't be needed. And that's why they're only temporary. But one day, even faith and hope will pass away because we will fully arrive at our destination, and we will no longer see in a glass darkly. When I was uh, 21, maybe, I participated in this leadership discipleship semester at a Christian camp in upstate New York and uh, we did a lot of hiking in the Adirondack Mountains and there was one particular night where it was getting dark and we were walking by the night the light of headlamps over very rocky terrain and the guy was leading us uh, we had the headlamps but he, he, he didn't want us to turn them on because he wanted our eyes to stay accustomed to the dark and we all felt like we were going to trip and we could see just enough to put one foot in front of the other. But eventually, we got to our destination where we came into a clearing, and it was brighter. And we were in a place called Avalanche Pass, which was this huge, dramatic ravine into this gorgeous lake, and we could see clearly. And what we are being told by God in this passage is that even as, you know, as we look at ourselves and as we look at the life of our church, we only see enough to put one foot in front of the other. We see in a glass darkly. But love, the Apostle Paul says, never fails, meaning it will lead us to our final destination. It will lead us there. And so we need to continue to put one foot in front of the other, trusting that love will lead us home. I, uh, I uh, not this past week, but the week before, had the chance to go to my first meeting of the Chicago Metro Presbytery, which is the regional group of pastors in our denomination that I'm a part of now. And I met a guy who's probably in his 50s named Mike, who is, for the first time actually, in the process of becoming a pastor in our denomination. And uh, he's at a church called Covenant Church somewhere in our region. And I said, I asked him, in just getting to know him, what's Covenant Church 
like? Uh, and he said, he hesitated for a minute, and he said, you know, it's a really wonderful place because they are just all about being a community of love. And then he said nothing else about it, which was fascinating because this was a guy, he's actually, he's an African-American brother from a very different tradition, and he's coming into a very different church world. And so presumably, there are all sorts of things he could say about the particulars of the church, like, I love that now I'm in this new tradition that I've sort of converted to, and now I have this, which I didn't have before. Or, this is really uncomfortable because I really miss this from my old tradition, and it feels a little... He didn't talk about any of that, for good or for ill. The only thing that came to mind to describe Covenant Church with respect to its particulars was... This is a church that is overflowing with love. And so my, my prayer for, for us is that we would be able to say the same about ourselves. And that the most skeptical of our neighbors in the years to come would somehow experience the life of this church in one form or another and be able to say the same thing. And the magnificent news that I, I want to close with is that the Apostle Paul opens up this letter to this group of Christians who he's going to sort of devastate by showing them how short they're falling, they're falling of the ideal of love by saying to them in the first verses, you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would help us to walk on this most excellent way of love and to more fully and more clearly see the love that you have for us and that you call us to embody in, uh, among each other and in our world. And it's in Christ's name that we pray.